Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Monday live show. Thank you very much for joining on the various platforms and uh, appreciate that. Um, we've got a really fascinating guest tonight. You're going to really love this one. So um, because we're going to get into matters COVID related, vax related, all that kind of stuff that uh, I know you're all really interested in. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, just before we do that, though, there's a couple of things I want to say. First of all, to remind you all that our sponsors, Quantum Hypno, link below, we're going to play their ad very quickly, and then I've got a few other wee bits to chat to you about as well. So let's just play the Quantum Hypno ad. Quantum Hypno is a transformative approach that connects with the superconscious through the power of hypnosis. I take the time to get to know you and create a relaxed setting where you can share your life story. There's no rush or time pressure involved. During the hypnosis session, you'll experience a natural and profound connection with the superconscious, accessing healing, wisdom, and the answers that you've been seeking throughout your life. Envision the ability to travel through time and space, recovering lost knowledge and exploring the universe. This life-changing work has already helped thousands of people dealing with addictions, trauma, or a sense of being lost, enabling them to move forward in the right direction. I've worked with people from all walks of life. So what are you waiting for? There you go. Arr. Quantum Hypno, check them out below. Uh, good supporter of the platform. Couple of quick things before we bring our guest in. Just I want to thank everybody uh, over on the podcast channel that we put out. We've just had our two million, two million downloads. So uh, quite an achievement for a little podcast channel, I think. So a big thank you to everyone who supports the David Vance podcast channel. Uh, and thanks for the couple of million uh, downloads. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, that's that I wanted to say. Uh, the other thing to say, of course, is my new Substack, which is up and running, the David Vance Substack. There you go. There's a little non-controversial one on uh, on the Super Bowl. So <laughs> go and check that out. Uh, lots of stuff going out, exclusive stuff. Go it's all free as well. Just go over there and do that. And the final thing is to say, uh, don't forget our live event in London, uh, live in London on the 1st of March with uh, Lawrence Fox and Calvin Robinson. The tickets are also uh, for sale. So you can come along, meet those guys and myself and Jed. Everyone's gonna be there in London, 1st of March, as we try to uh, bring, I guess, yeah, here we go, hold the line challenge the narrative. Uh, the second of these events, which we are premiering in good old London town, Bring a stab vest, because I'm sure you're probably going to need it in London. But nonetheless, look forward to seeing you in London on the 1st of March. Right. She's been sitting very patiently in the background. I'm not going to keep her any longer. So, look, th there are some people that you sort of discover um, uh, on social media. And this lady I've discovered, uh, she's an absolute gem. And uh, I'm really pleased that she's given up her time to spend some time with us this evening. So, without further ado, can I introduce... Dr. Kat Lindley. Kat. Hi. 
Hi, good to see, good to see you. Thank you so much for for coming on the stream. And uh, you know, uh, there's so much uh, I want to talk to you about, Cat. Uh, but maybe maybe just to start with, I mean, I'm familiar with your background and whatnot. Could you just give our viewers and, and listeners as well a quick summary of who you, who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm a family doctor in Texas, but I was born in Croatia uh, when it was Yugoslavia. I lived there until I was 18. I went to live in Italy for a little while and even made it to London for six months, but it rained and I got depressed and I wanted to go back to the warm. Yeah. So I went back to Italy and then eventually uh, found my way to United States. I went um, to medical school here and uh, became a doctor and that's really it. Yeah, that's an interesting sort of uh, Croatia is a lovely place, Croatia. I was there just actually, funny enough, Cap, just before the whole COVID thing kicked off in 2020. I had been there the previous year um, and I uh, really, really liked it. You know, I really liked the people and um, uh, and I also like the sunshine as well. Something, those of us in Ireland, we don't, because you, you, I know you've been across here recently, not a lot of sunshine about in Ireland. So, you know, it's, uh, it's good to go to places where you get plenty of sunshine. And, and as you say, you're located in Texas. So I think that's a reasonably a reasonably uh, benign climate you've got there. But uh, Kat, tell me this. So as, as well as your as being a physician, I mean, there's a couple of other interesting positions that you occupy. Uh, you're president of the Global Health Project. That's one of the things you do. And here is a Global Health Project, folks. Make sure you bookmark them. Make sure you follow the GHP. Cat, um, just outline very briefly what the Global Health Project is about. So we came together about a year ago um, as a coalition of, you know, different organizations in uh, the States, uh, physicians, scientists, moms, educators, and we wanted to come together and, and kind of spread a message of people being united. We, you know, especially as a doctor, I understand the trust was broken in this, these past several years. And now not only do we have to regain the trust, but we have to start building um, our own kind of communities where we can uh, exchange ideas, um, help people with whatever it is you know it's not only about health but it's also about our children's education finances and everything kind of together and most more recently because of my interest in the world health organization we've kind of created several videos informing people on what's happening yeah no i think it's a really useful um a project the global health project and then the other thing that you're involved in is you're a director of the global COVID summit as well. That's another another role that you play. So again, tell us a little bit about the global COVID summit. And here it is, folks. You can check it out and go and get all the videos and stuff. Tell us a little bit about that, Kat, as well. So Global COVID Summit is coalition of 17,000 scientists and physicians. Um, we came together early on with Dr. Richard Urso, um, Dr. Lynn Finn, Ryan Cole, uh, at some point, Peter McCullough was part of it, uh, Robert Malone. Uh, we have a pediatric cardiologist, Dr. Milhone, and several others. And um, along the way, we created several um, declarations. And most recently, we issued our fifth declaration. That That's the video that you have there with Dr. George Farid and Brian Tyson. 
Yeah. If you remember, possibly Dr. George Freed and Brian Tyson, they wrote a book about how many patients they treated with the early treatment and how they did well and all that. So Dr. George Farid is, you know, one of those doctors. He, he's a gem of a person. So when he speaks, we all decided that he should be the one doing the video and reading the declaration because you can yeah. tell that he's such a humble, kind man. Yeah. Um, and declaration mainly touches on everything that has happened. You know, we asked for the uh, COVID-19 vaccines and we actually called them mRNA gene shots to be um, removed from the market along yeah. Many other things that need to be done. Yeah, I mean that, that's what I love about. Th see, the thing about it is, Kat. Um, just as we, we, before we came on air, I was saying, you know, a lot of us had our faith in in in, in medicine and in doctors shattered, absolutely shattered in twenty twenty. I would never have believed that GPs, some uh, doctors in general, and and the whole sort of a lot of the medical establishment would turn out the way that it did, and so. It's, it's encouraging for people like me, and I'm sure the people who follow me, to see people like you, who we can clearly see, uh, and, and people like, you know, the, the names you've mentioned there, and uh, mm -hmm. Robert Malone, and, and Peter McCullough, and all these other great guys that uh, are, are, I think, trying to address the the the, the massive problems that, um, that, that medicine has fallen into. I mean, a, a question for you, I mean, a very simple question. Where did it all go wrong, Kat? Because <laughs> up into 2019, it didn't, well, maybe maybe things weren't right then and we didn't understand, but we sure as heck understood from 2020 on that things are things have gone wrong here very, very quickly. And we had these mouthpieces like Fauci across in the States, and we had them here in the UK as well. And um, people who we, people probably trusted but, but that trust was very misplaced. And how did you feel about it at the very beginning, Kat? So I think, you know, the balance of powers kind of shifted over time. And then uh, at least in the United States, uh, just kind of before Obamacare, um, the yep. hospitals and big corporations started buying private uh, physician practices. So you started seeing this, like surgeons of um, doctors who were working for the hospital or for the big system. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, as that started happening, um, the boss started changing, right? Where before, if you're in private practice, your boss is the patient, you know, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. But yeah. when you start working for these different corporations, then you start having to follow their metrics, their rules and things like that. So when COVID happened, uh, at least in the United States, you had a very large percentage of doctors who were employed by the systems. So when the um, kind of it came out that, you know, tell your patients not to come to the office, everyone, all of these corporations and offices closed their um, yeah. office and patients were supposed to go to the hospital, go to the ER. Um, that's kind of when you start seeing that the system is broken, you know, doctors not really answering to the patient. Yeah. but to the one who is signing their checks. And uh, for me, I actually went into private practice before COVID. Uh, and also before that, I used to be very vocal about the fact that you need to maintain the private practice of medicine to, to really be independent. Yeah. Um, so I actually was not a fan of NHS, just so you know, because I yeah. saw NHS 
and the Canadian system as a way of introducing cancer in medicine because you have in government or whoever, you know, in America it's corporations, but for you guys it's government who is in charge of healthcare. Yeah. Something like that happens, you start losing who you are serving, right? Because that line gets a little bit blurred. So mm-hmm. you kind of start start serving the ones who are signing your check. And I, I would say that COVID exposed that. Yeah. Which is kind of good because now people are realizing that you don't need to see a doctor for every sniffle and sneeze. Lots of times there are many things you can do on your own to stay healthy. Yes. And the medicine has become an industry of sickness and not an industry of wellness as it used to be. So, for example, I practice private medicine and I do membership uh, structure. So my patients pay a very reasonable uh, amount. It's anywhere from $35 to $110 a month. But they can be seen 24-7 anytime. If I can see them, you know, they can text me or whatever is going on. So they know that I'm always there. And it's kind of, and my incentive is actually to keep them out of the office. And I, if, they, if I keep them healthy and out of the office, then I don't have to go and spend eight hours a day in the office. I can go to my kids, you know, sporting mm-hmm. event or something. But it's just kind of like a really nice incentive because my incentive is to keep my patients healthy and they like it because they know that I have their best interests at heart. And if I say that they need to take something, then, you know, they most likely do. And I don't, you know, shove medicine down their throats, which I think is very important. Yeah. There's that expression. I'm sure you've heard it uh, regarding big pharma and all of that. A patient cured is a patient law is a patient law. Yes. Profit lost, and 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 our NHS system we have it's to me absolutely disastrous. And I actually saw in your timeline, Kat, early put it out earlier today about Canada. I think is trying to now. Well, nothing surprises me about about Canada anymore. I'm sorry, it's just so it's so awful. And we saw that during COVID. Mm-hmm. The, the Canadian model seems to now want to go full on down the NHS model, which absolutely failed us, failed people, um, caused, I think, a lot of death as well for what it's worth in over the last couple of years. So it, it amazes me that um, Canada, in one way, that Canada would do that. Because as you say, the, the best thing is for patients to be healthy and and not to be essentially walking around rattling full of draw, you know, medications for this, that, and the other. That's what I've learned. One of the things I've learned, Kat, over the last few years is that, you know, um, I can be responsible for my health. I can do, I can eat well, I can eat clean, I can exercise, I can do all the right stuff. I don't need to be running to the doctor. Um, but if I did want to go to see the doctor um, via the system we have, I mean, I'd have a better chance of getting an interview with Joe Biden because it's nearly impossible to see doc- well it was impossible to see doctors and even post covid cat we live in a system here in the UK where you can't really get to see a, a, like a face to face like you and I are doing um you'll get a telephone call which always amazes me because as a doctor how can you possibly figure out what's wrong with someone over the phone i mean i think that's impossible that system we've got what do you think of that system well, actually, in defense of those doctors who sometimes do phone calls, sometimes you can because it can be very pretty obvious what it is. But one thing that, you know, your whole system, I've been saying for years is broken because I had a friend who had a gastrointestinal issue complaint. Mm-hmm. 
and I could tell exactly what it was and what he needed. And if he was my patient or if he was here in the United States, I could have ordered those things for him yeah. and probably got him better within like a few days. But um, he had to wait for his GP to call. It took a couple of months to get actually on a phone call, not even a visit. Yeah. And then once he explained what the problem was, then the GP had to could not order the, the test for it. He had to send him to GI service to order the test and then wait for the GI service to order the test, get the mm-hmm. test read by the radiologist, and then um, decide. So it was probably like six months to get yeah. the diagnosis and treatment of something that I could have done within days. Yeah, And that's what happens when you have bureaucracy who is managing the care and not the doctor and the patient. It takes forever. You lose things. You It's very easy to get lost in the system. Yeah. And even if you have something done, it's easy for, to like for someone not to call you with the results. And then, you know, you hear of these people who die from a diagnosis because they didn't get it. Or it was too late to do something. So, you know, like I said, I'm not a fan of government run healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, um, I agree. yeah. And, you know, for us, uh, the, the veteran affairs is like who takes care of our veterans. So there's the government run medicine in the United States. There's some of the worst when it comes to bureaucracy and red tape yeah. and you have a lot of these veterans who need uh, help who are not getting it timely. And then they get just shoved medicines down the, their throat instead of really trying to figure out what's causing um, yeah. the issue. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you here in the UK, long before COVID cat, you know, before even COVID came in and exposed everything, our, our sort of publicly sort of government controlled health system, it wasn't working at all well, you know, anyway. It's just that it, it tended to be covered up. But then along came COVID. And I think a lot of people like myself suddenly woke up and thought, hang on a second, this is this doesn't even feel right to me. You know, nothing feels right about this. And of course, we had the dancing TikTok nurses here in the UK, like you did in the US. And I'm thinking, this is a really strange system. This is, things don't seem right to me here at all. You know, and 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 then the other thing was that I had previously had some um, relations with a couple of the big pharmaceutical companies in sort of private um, business capacity. So I always assumed that. I remember talking to a very large global player in the pharmaceutical industry uh, about 15 years ago, and we did, we were having dinner, and they were saying to me, you know, look, you see, to to take uh, to to try and find a new drug for whatever it is, it's going to take us maybe 10 years, maybe maybe a little more, a bit more than that, and we've got a couple of years uh, before it goes off patent, and then. That's it done. So I'd always understood, Kat, that that was the kind of approximate time scale, you know, right about that. And then in 2020, we discovered, oh, no, 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 it can be done in three or four months or, or you know, a, a short time. And that was the absolute red flag to me that that contradicted everything I've been told by Big Pharma. And what, what did you think at the time when, you know, you saw these... Uh, vaccines they weren't vaccines uh being pushed through so quickly i mean did, did that raise a red flag for you how did you feel about that well it was kind of interesting that they were able to develop um a product on a new platform so fast and that mm. right away they said it was safe and effective well how can you know it's safe and effective if you haven't done any studies i think what they should have said if they wanted to be transparent is 
we did the best we can with what we have and we think it's safe and effective, right? But no, they just said it is safe and effective. And then the other red flag was, you know, as, as soon as people started getting them, some, some people started getting adverse events, some with one, some with two and more, but they were completely ignored. You know, that was a huge red flag. For example, I have a puppy, by the way, in my hands. For those who are seeing my hands moving, I'm trying to keep him quiet. So, um, you know, for example, if I give you amoxicillin, which is like penicillin-like antibiotic, and um, I gave it to you for sinus infection or strep, and you call me within 24, 48 times, sometimes even four or five days later, and you say to me, you know what, I developed a rash. And there is nothing new I gave you other than penicillin or amoxicillin. I would assume that the medication I gave you caused an adverse event. And we would stop it and I would give you a different antibiotic. But we didn't do this here, right? You had all these people who some of them had catastrophic events. Yes. And they said, oh, no, it's safe. You can get the next one. And then, like, they get the next one and something bad happens. They're like, oh, no, no, you're fine. Get the third one. So that's something that never made sense, obviously. And you don't have to be a scientist or a doctor to say, you know, something's rotten in Denmark. So I think uh, people started seeing what's happening and realized that the whole premise about, you know, with everything that's happened was faulty from the beginning. And as that was developing, we started losing um, confidence in them. Now, Now, I do have to say this because... I understand that the doctors definitely um, lost a huge amount of trust with um, the public. But I would say to a certain extent, for doctors believing in CDC, NIH, you know, FDA, we always thought that these agencies are good, that they have the best interest at heart. So it's almost like, you know, someone who is a Christian and you read the Bible and someone comes along and says, well, Bible was written by... A magician and it's not real it's almost that kind of a um, thing and it can be an existential yeah. crisis right because yes. you always believe something and all of a sudden oh it's not real so it, it does take time i would say that like i've seen a lot of doctors now who may not be speaking out like i do but lots of them are trying to do the best they can for their patients yeah. Even if it came a little late, which I think is still good, and we need to be able to accept that. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, good thing that happened these last few years is that people have realized that we cannot trust um, these agencies. They do have huge conflict of interest, and people need to do their own um, homework. Another thing that I think is really good, and the reason I feel that people should pay for their health care is. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, but there needs to be some kind of exchange. If you get something for free, you really don't put an effort into it. You're like, well, you know, this is free. I can do whatever I want because if this doesn't work, doctor is going to give me something else or I'm going to try something, whatever. But you actually pay for something, for that product. It better be good because you're going to demand your money back. Mm. So, so I do think that like with what happened with past few years, we've, we've almost reached that point where people are like, you know what, before I believe you doing this, you better like back up what you're saying. And that's always good. Mm. Because uh, the other thing is like whenever the, the COVID uh, jabs first came out, um, a lot of people did 
take them because they were told they 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 listened to trusted voices. Everyone was telling them to to take them, and uh, some of us, mind you, weren't. But uh, critical thinkers were not particularly acknowledged at that point. And um, I think it was Peter McCullough that said, "Can't that?" I think the first, the very first, or one of the first COVID, uh, one of the people who died almost within two weeks of taking a job, I think it, they took the job 1st of February, 2021. They were dead by the roughly this time or the middle of February, 2021. Um, and again, you know, instead of that being an alert, a warning, and you said something very interesting that, you know, if, if there just had been honesty and openness and saying, look, you know, there's, there's an element of risk here, folks. There's potential danger, but it might do you some good. But that wasn't the agenda, was it? Fauci said it, 100% safe, 100% effective. And, and can't, I mean, last week here in the House of Commons at Westminster, we had the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, stand up and add to the dispatch box, and he stated that, unbelievable, the jabs were unequivocally safe. But that's unequivocally nonsense because they're not. There's a track record of adverse reactions, as you know, up to and including death. You, you cannot say these things are unequivocally safe, can you? You can't. And, and the other thing that people have to realize, in the past, if you get vaccinated for something, you're considered vaccinated right away. Mm. With this product, they said, you know, I believe it was 14 days later, that you were vaccinated so a lot of the adverse events especially at the beginning uh they kept yeah. on saying like it was unvaccinated that we're getting those uh, you know events or even some yeah. deaths that occurred really early yeah. from the vaccine they said it was unvaccinated when it, in reality it was actually the vaccinated were having those uh, effects mm -hmm. so there's something needs to be recognized and something that all of our countries have kind of gone along with which if you actually did statistical analysis now you would realize that lots of those deaths or adverse events actually came in the vaccinated not the unvaccinated yeah. and you know from what i followed a little bit of rishi sunak and i didn't follow him much but i do remember that several people from uk have highlighted the fact that he has huge conflict of interest when it comes to covid uh, yeah. because of one of the companies right that he invested in or something yeah. along those lines and that's another thing. Uh, none of our politicians should have any kind of investment in pharma or any kind of products like that that they are actually pushing on their constituents because they're making money yeah. on something that they're pushing. And the fact that they say it's safe and effective means nothing. Mm. Um, but he's kind of saying that probably to cover his own behind. I'm sure he is. Yeah, I'm. I mean, he was the uh, in a very important position. He was the chancellor in the UK when COVID uh, hit, and as a consequence of his uh, maladministration, I mean, our economy went down the tubes because they were shut. Mm -hmm. us, you can't shut an economy down of a major. Well, it happened in the states as well. In fact, but you guys were luckier in the states than we were in the UK because the UK. It's it's so much more homogenous. It is all controlled by the NHS. Cat so. That's it. There's really, and any doctors that, I mean, I've, I've had quite a few, I don't know if, I've had guys like Dr. Dave Cartland, I've had people like that mm -hmm. on, 
who have been absolutely, you know, crucified and, and, and you know, sort of basically their life's been made miserable because they simply ask questions. Dave Cartland, he actually took the vaccines uh, and then came to regret it. And he's an ethical doctor, as are you, as are a lot of your colleagues. And so I'm thankful that there are ethical doctors around an issue. I also accept your point, by the way, that maybe some of your colleagues who went along initially now have cause to think, well, yeah. And, and that's fine, by the way. I think that's okay because there's people like myself that, and others that probably follow me who, who from day one, we just didn't, we weren't happy and we didn't think it was the right, right thing to do. But I don't judge anyone that did, Cat. You know, people are listening to trusted sources and, the, you know, the man on the TV tells you to take it and all these celebrities mm -hmm. tell you to take it. Well, then some people that's good enough for, you know. But, um, but one of the things that gets me is they, they twisted the terminology vaccine to include, to, to call it a vaccine in the first place, didn't they? And now, as you point out in your timeline, they're trying to twist the term gene therapy. Just talk us through those two aspects of it, because I find that very interesting, because language matters. Yes. So I'm going to look on my um, Twitter feed right now, yeah. because... Uh, the lobbies for Moderna and Pfizer, BioNTech, are meeting with European Commission yeah. uh, because they want to make sure that they change the language um, because uh, they consider COVID-19 vaccine as mRNA vaccine, which is considered in their language um, as a gene therapy. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, in our actually declaration, we call these uh, COVID-19 injections that need to be classified as a gene therapy. Oh, yeah. And then a friend of mine um, also tagged me on Twitter, and he showed the documents that Moderna used in 2018, 19, and 20, where they, all, when, where they classify these uh, products as gene therapy by the FDA. So uh, I think they're trying to change the language mm. because... Uh, they don't want it to be called um, gene therapy. therapy because then, you know, it cannot be most likely, you know, that's all regulatory stuff. And I'm not an expert in regulatory, but I think if you call it the gene therapy, you cannot call it the vaccine as well. And then it, it has uh, issues when it comes to the uh, different approvals and things like that. Yeah. But I'm not an expert, so. No, 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 I understand. But I, I don't accept that the COVID injections were ever vaccines in the in the in the normally understood description of what a vaccine is, I believe that was deceptive language they used as well to, to sell. Because, I mean, I never realized, Kat, that companies like Pfizer and, and, and Moderna um, in, in the US and here in the UK, AstraZeneca, like, I didn't realize the power that they had, the power over the political system, over the media. I mean, I didn't realize that. Um, even like um, we had the Super Bowl in the States, I think, uh, last night, your time. Last night, yeah. And, and I mean, again, you know, I mean, everything sponsored by Pfizer, the US sponsored by Pfizer. It, it, it's amazing. And, and obviously money talks and money talked back then as well, because we, our media was in lockstep in complete approval of everything that was being told. Uh, to us, you know, yes, you can trust these treatments. Yes, they're va they're just like normal vaccines. Cat, they were never like normal vaccines, were they? 
No, they were not. And they had to change the uh, definition so they can classify them as vaccines so they can be put on pediatric schedule. In the United States, if you have a, a vaccine on pediatric schedule, then um, they have indemnity and they cannot be sued for it. So that was a long-term goal, and that's why most likely it was approved in children, although it should not have been because children yeah. were, even at the beginning, at very low risk of COVID. Uh, the only severe uh, reactions that kids had with COVID were, were, were the ones who actually had a lot of comorbid diseases and risk factors. But regular children did extremely well, and for some of them it was just a cold when the adults sometimes were getting sick, children did well. So there was always a purpose to all this. Mm. Um, you know, interestingly, they're trying to push all of the new vaccines on this platform, and that's maybe why they're pushing so hard for it to be re remain as named um, as vaccines so that they can do that because they want to introduce, you know, the new RSV, the new flu, the new yeah. whatever yes. on the mRNA platform because it can be done very fast um, and uh, they don't have to spend as much money in production. But the problem is the actual platform, the lipid nanoparticle yeah. and this spike protein that they chose, it's very inflammatory and it causes lots of side effects as we've seen, whether it's uh, you know, dysregulation of the um, cancer genes or... Um, uh, mm -hmm. causing clotting issues or causing neuro uh, events or myocarditis, as we've seen in uh, you know adolescent males in particular. There are too many issues for us to keep on ignoring it and to keep on giving boosters. And what people have to realize every time there is a booster, that booster is actually old because by the time they make it, the, the vaccine itself is on a different strain. Um, so they're using something that actually doesn't even cover the current strain that people might be in. And um, at this point, for most people, COVID is very mild disease. It's more like a cold. And if you take care of your body and, and your immune system, most people do really well without even having to take anything in particular. Uh, and, and you mentioned on the, the sort of the, the, the mRNA platform, which they've used uh, and I mean, we we saw that, um, and we we've seen the emergence of these turbo cancers and and that whole issue. Mm -hmm. One of the things that amazed me last week here, we had King Charles diagnosed with a form of cancer. Now we don't know what form it is, or we haven't any details. But on the very same day, on the same day, the UK government released a press release praising the fact that it had innovated uh, with big pharma uh, mRNA cancer vaccine and i'm thinking to myself well, well hang on a second the mrna covid jabs have issues concerning potentially cancers and now you're coming along and you're saying don't worry about it we've got another jab this time it'll cure the cancer that maybe the first jabs give you i mean do you think mrna is a, a stable platform to have any treatments or do you think they should all be banned so I'm really not an expert. So everything I tell you, take it with a grain of salt. Okay. Um, but from what I understand, the mRNA gene therapy was initially created because they were thinking if we can target a specific area, if someone does have cancer and you target this specific area in the cancer, you can um, cause people for the cancer to stop spreading 
and potentially go into remission. So I would say there is probably possibly some benefit to it, but the problem is the lipid nanoparticle. So Dr. Richard Ursa is actually a little bit of an expert in this. Um, but what he says is the problem with lipid nanoparticle is it goes everywhere. Yes. So they use this vehicle to deliver a therapy and instead of staying where it was going to stay and create and help our immune system create immunity, which it didn't, by the way, it, it traveled everywhere. Yeah. And that's yeah. why you're having, in some people, it concentrates in myocardium, in some people, it concentrates in nervous system, in some people, it concentrates in their, you know, um, it causes cl- clotting issues or different things. So, so that's, so I think the platform itself, the mRNA, you know, they think that there is a potential, but I think the, the problem is that delivery system, the yeah. delivery system using lipid nanoparticle, uh, as it's shown so far, it's faulty. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because everyone was told that, you know, once you get your injection, it'll stay, it stays local. It absolutely doesn't, as you say. And I remember Dr. Cartland saying to me, one of his concerns was he also believed that the nanoparticles, they could cross the blood-brain barrier as well, because it can go anywhere in your body. I mean, it doesn't stop. Yeah. You know, in, in, in some, it can be anywhere. Uh, and we've seen Well, they've that. shown it in, a breast, uh, in breast milk. So it does cross, yeah. cross the, um, the barrier and, and then they showed lesion in, in, in neural system as well. So, yeah, there's definitely concern and it needs to be abandoned. You know, I think it's unconscionable that we are still recommending them and our CDC is putting advertisements all over X, knowing what we know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, pharmacovigilance is a um, um, type of science where you keep a track of what's happening with a drug or a product. And then if you have a certain percentage of yeah. Yeah. Uh, adverse events or things, you, you make a decision to pull it back, maybe, you know, modify, and then essentially maybe do more studies to see if you can bring it back. In the past, we've been very good with pharmacovigilance. When they had an RSV vaccine, they pulled it back because it caused intersusception in kids, which is a GI issue. The swine flu vaccine was also, um, you know, removed from the market. And then the medication Vioxx, which is a cardiac anti-inflammatory medication, it's anti-inflammatory medication that can be used in cardiac patients, uh, was removed from the market after they had 6,000 deaths. So the system used to work. All of a sudden, it doesn't work. You know, even by conservative numbers, we have a Mm -hmm. huge amount of adverse events. We even have deaths but we're ignoring them we keep on saying oh it's safe and effective keep on getting it yeah so it's it's crazy and can i ask you as well cam when this all started i remember sort of whatever that said look um covid19 it's particularly affecting the elder pop the 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 oldest sort of demographic uh percentage mm-hmm. of the population you could sort of see an argument for that maybe maybe not but then within a very short time it was from the you know 70 year old 60 50 40 and then where i found it was really really just grotesque was whenever they said children you touched on children earlier they were saying oh yeah yeah we got to get it into the children you know teenagers and then under tens and then basically you know under fives and can't there, there can be no absolutely zero 
justification for jabbing that young age cohort with this mRNA treatment, can there? No, there shouldn't. I actually testified in June of, uh, I believe it was 22, in yeah. front of the like CDC immunization um, committee, maybe we back, I forget what they're called. But I testified against um, the vaccines in children because even at that time, according to uh, CDC data in United States, 83% of children already had COVID and had immunity, which means that the vaccine is not needed. It wouldn't really have a benefit in them because they already had a disease and they had their own yeah. immune system who was going to recognize it. It didn't matter what anyone said. They were going to approve that vaccine, and they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And, uh, and, this, and, and this reasoning why is, like I said, is to put it on pediatric schedule for that indemnity clause that the pharmaceutical companies would have. Mm. Um, I think, you know, a friend of mine actually posted on Twitter, um, I believe today or yesterday, in one of the states, I don't think it says which state, but they are because these vaccines are on pediatric schedule, they are asking for uh, children who are in child uh, protective services to be vaccinated, which again, it's unconscionable that we're going to be vaccinating children yeah. for this. Um, and for your viewers who are seeing me do gymnastics, it's my dog that's playing with toys and I'm trying to... We get the side effects. Not, we're, we're, we're all enjoying yeah. the in the background. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get him not to do it. Uh, so I just hit his toy. <laughs> but, um, you know, there is, a, there is a reason for all these things. And I think um, it's really unconscionable of our agencies to keep on pushing this, especially in children. There's no rhyme and reason. And, you know, I have five children. One of my, my oldest child is at university. Luckily, his university doesn't require, require mm. him. But I have that fear as a parent that if your child is under pressure from his friends or teachers mm. or, you know, like he, he studies music, he plays several instruments and it's in orchestra and things like that. So, like, if they say, well, you can't play because of this, my, despite, you know, I talk to him all the time and he knows I will be very mad if he was to get it but there's yeah. that peer pressure that our kids are yeah. under and you know um it's really we need to keep on talking about this and making sure that these that these injections are removed from the market well then an, an area that i wanted to move on to because uh we touched on it again at the beginning was the, the whole the world health organization dr tedros and the gang um i mean i see them as a global menace I, uh, I'm very concerned about this global, what do they call it? The Global Pandemic Accord. It's definitely not a treaty. It's definitely not a treaty. You know, it's, it's an accord. It's a, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, and of course, you and your organization have been very forthright in, in, in calling out the uh, WHO because what worries me is if this goes through, Catherine, you, I mean, I know, you, I know you fully understand this better than me probably, but if this goes through, uh, then I believe that that will give the World Health Organization control over what the U.S. does, the U.K. The signatories to this will then implement whatever they say. And that means, like, if we're back two years ago, whenever they tried to fly the flag over monkeypox, which fell apart, but they could have declared that as a global pandemic. They could have. And if this goes through, 
it would become a global pandemic or disease X or whatever they want. So tell us what you feel about, you know, this global pandemic treaty slash accord and what you think is the correct response. So I got suspended from the Twitter over the monkeypox. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was interesting. Um, but anyway, so what people have to realize, there are two instruments that WHO is negotiating at the same time. One is the pandemic treaty. They also call it accord agreement. It was also known as zero draft and CA++. So we have pandemic treaty or agreement right now. And then we have the amendments to international health regulation. Uh, honestly, either one of them will accomplish very similar things. Essentially, is exactly like you said, if they are approved, um, you know, Tedros today tweeted and saying there's so much misinformation about pandemic treaty and the conspiracy theory saying that we will do this, this, and this, but we won't be doing any of those things, whatever. And my response to him was, you know, so you're not going to take control over uh, mm. the public health emergency of international concern and tell us to close our borders or make us do the uh, certain vaccines? Because that, that's essentially what they can do. If these two documents are passed in um, Geneva in May of 24, Mm. then you're going to have um, World Health Organization become this agency for health around the world. So let's say that there is an outbreak of something somewhere in a Brazilian jungle. For some reason, I like that example. Sorry. So Brazilian jungle, there is an outbreak. And WHO finds out about it. And then they send their team there. And team, you know, tells Tedro what's going on. And he said, oh. It's a public health emergency of international concern. I'm going to close the border. Now, Brazilian government can actually say, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's nothing there. There's just something that occurs in the summer. We don't worry about it. It's something silly. But they're not going to have a say in it. If these things are passed, if uh, Director General declares a public health emergency of international concern, he will have the power to close the border, restrict travel, to tell us uh, what type of medications we can use, therapeutics, which vaccine we can use um, to put people in isolation, quarantine, or whatever. Yeah. He will essentially make decisions on what happens. Once they do that, obviously, if they start closing the borders and different things like that, they can, it can affect the sovereignty of a country because you're not going to be allowed to do trade with other countries. You know, It's going to affect you in many other ways. The other thing that they're trying to accomplish is really censor speech. Because yeah. if we don't say things the way World Health Organization wants us to tell it, then they want our governments to censor us. Whether that means, you know, we lose our license as doctors or you end up in a jail, who knows? They can decide whatever they want to do. They also want uh, countries to surveil for new pathogens and everything. And then they want these pathogens to be shared for research, for development, for mm -hmm. other things. So you have to wonder, like gain of function again, what happens if these things escapes from this? And then the other concept is this One Health. One Health is like really ambiguous subject because they kind of say that the health of mm -hmm. humans is not more important than 
plants and animals, and it is affected by climate change. So yeah. essentially, under one health, they can control every aspect of life on Earth. Again, my question is, why? First of all, pandemics don't happen. They're very rare. And even mm -hmm. if you look at what happened with COVID, we all know that our governments inflated the numbers. Totally. That we called yeah. people who didn't have COVID, but because they tested positive and they died from something else, they called them COVID deaths. So we all know that even under, the re under their own definition of pandemic, we most likely didn't have one. Yeah. But in reality, pandemics don't happen. They're very rare, but they want us to be in this perpetual state of pandemics where they're discovering new things. You know, um, they just had an article in Alaska. They uh, discovered Alaska pox, and I think it is Alaska pox. Pox, yeah. And then we we have like a bubonic plague uh, case in Oregon. Well, we have antibiotics for that. They're trying to keep on keep us in this perpetual state of fear because they want to enact global governance. That's the actual thing they want at the end of the day because you have WHO who is a child of United Nations and you have United Nations Secretary General who said at WEF in January how we need global governance, you know, yeah. because we are stupid little idiotic people that don't know what to do. So they need, we need someone above us to tell us what to do. Yeah. Right? So, you know, so, so you have UN who is trying to enact the CBDC, which is the, you know, the central bank digital currency. Yeah. You have WHO who recently in June of last year adopted digital vaccine passport from Europe, mm. uh, from, from European Union. That's right, yeah. And, and then you have European Union. If you really look at, no one has really deeply looked into European Union. We all make fun of them and we all say that their president is a, crazy person, lady, but we haven't really looked into them. I remember when, um, you know, European Union kind of started. I remember, like, I didn't live in Croatia by the time. I was like, oh, it would be so cool if Croatia becomes part of European Union, and they did, because everything will be easier. You'll be able to travel. You, you won't have to worry about this and that. But actually what happened al along the line, all of these countries, including Ireland and Croatia, we have all lost this national identity because I was in Croatia in yeah. December and there is no kuna anymore. We use euro. Yeah. You know, the European Union flag is right there next to the Croatian flag. Mm. Everything is about the union. And I actually read something on Twitter yesterday or day before how they are going to have a meeting to make European Union states even stronger. But if you look at this microcosm of European Union, they are an example of global governance. Yep. European Union Commission, they have uh, committees, from what I've heard, and this is secondhand, so take it for what it's worth, but some of the MEPs, like, they even give their money not to come to the meetings because they want to do everything within the committee and make these decisions. Yeah. So that they just say, you know, from high above, this is what you have to do. I'm sorry, yep. my son came home and my dog is going crazy now. Uh, you know, this is a household of five children and four yeah. dogs and three cats, so it's crazy. You've done well. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, you have to look at this European Union, United Nations, and WHO. All yeah. of these 
three institutions are trying to achieve global governance because they feel that, you know, we are, um, like I said, not well-educated people and we need someone else to tell us what to do. And one of the things, Kat, that worries me is, I mean, you mentioned the all those organizations, the UN, WHO in particular, and I think the politicians in Washington, in London, in Brussels, I think they'd be very happy to turn around in the event of uh, the World Health Organization uh, making some declaration. They can turn around and say, you can't blame us. And look, the WHO, these are the experts and you can't argue, we can't argue with experts now, can we? And therefore they will use the WHO as a shield for them to introduce the crushing mechanisms we've seen over the last few years. And I think, you know, things like closing borders, stopping travel, maybe forcing people to take jobs. All of these things can become possible. But the the, the local governments can turn around and say, you can't blame us. It's not us. It's not us. It's Dr. Tedros and his experts. And unless you can argue, and, and as you say, if you try to argue back with them, you're going to be censored. You're going to be shuffled off platforms and stuff. It's. I see, honestly, I don't see viruses, which I'm questioning, by the way, as a problem. I see the World Health Organization as a, as a virus, as a big problem. And do you think that that the, those top couple of, um, you know, the, the pandemic treaty and the other um, things, do you think that's going to go through or not this year? What do you, What's your sense on that one, Kat? So um, they are having trouble with the pandemic treaty. Uh, I've, actually, even pharma doesn't like it because the pandemic treaty is, uh, talks a lot about equity and the need to share all of these things and make it fair uh-huh. and yeah. things like that. So, uh, and the countries are resisting a little bit. So pandemic treaty is going to be interesting to see if it actually be passed. But the problems are also these amendments to international health regulation. I yeah. do feel that something will get passed. And uh, we are at a huge risk of losing our sovereignty because of a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. We do need to take it seriously. But as you said, you know, our uh, politicians are not taking it seriously. A lot of them will say, first of all, most of them don't even know it, right? Most of them have not read the documents yep. and, and they think the WHO is this benevolent, great organization who only thinks uh, best of the people, right? So th- there is a certain level of ignorance there. Um, and the ones who have read it, and I would say this across all the governments, they feel like, oh, they can't do that. The fact if we sign this, no, they're not going to be able to make decisions for us. We will still make decisions because, you know, they're arrogant that they think they're so important. But essentially what they will do is give, uh, transfer that power to the World Health Organization. And uh, for some, there is definitely um, benefit to it because even your own prime minister is benefiting from the last pandemic, right? And we see that. We see that there's lots of strings and these uh, connections among others. And um, I do fear that something will be passed in, in uh, May. But I can also tell you, if you follow Tedros, which, who I don't follow on Twitter, but somehow he ends up in my feed every time. Uh, but if you actually follow him, he is showing some um, annoyance. Like today's tweet. For yeah. those of you who, who, who are on Twitter, I'm KL Veritas. I actually uh, quoted one of his tweets you can see that he's irritated because he's like, 
there these are people are conspiracy theorists and we're not going to do this yeah um, so i thought that was kind of interesting i think he's uh, he's a little bit having hard time and uh what we're all doing together it's making some difference which is good yeah i th- I, th- I think so i mean I sort of as, as we draw towards the end of this i think we have to can't look at the um the positive side of things and the positive side of things is over the last three or four years there has been this emergence of what i consider ethical doctors uh, who 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 understand exactly what's going on, and there are there are a few ethical politicians around as well. And and you know the, the thing is that you know my ultimately it's about bodily autonomy for me. I have to have the right what enters my body or not. That's it, black and white. But what worries me is if the WHO get what they want, they will essentially try to. That's what the plan is, obviously. They want to take away that power and they'll decide what I'm going to have, you know. So we might have uh, big battles ahead, Kat, I think, with the World Health Organization. And, uh, you know, again, I would never have thought that that organization was as malignant as it is. But but it honestly, it's very, it's a political organization. It's not even really about health, I think. What do you think about that? Well, it's true because, you know, when they were formed in 48, I believe, the dues were paid by the countries. Country had to pay a certain amount and that was the money that they had. And in recent years, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how many, whether it's 10, 15, 20, the funding has changed. So now only 20% comes from the countries and the 80% comes from the, some of the countries and uh, private uh, public partnerships like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Welcome Trump and others. So they yeah. have their own conflict of interest, you know, they, they are pushing for these things because that's how they get their funding. So they lost really authority because of the conflict of interest that they have. And if it's up to them, they will keep us in this perpetual state of pandemic because it benefits them. Mm. One thing that I would caution people, I, I hear a lot from other people who say, well, I will never do this. I will never let them pull me again. I will never get uh, another thing. And I don't disagree with that. But you have to realize that we all have that something that they're going to try to leverage. So we need to remain vigilant, but yeah. we ourselves should not be arrogant. What we need to do is uh, recognize what the problem is and then work through it and create solutions. Because, you know, for me as a parent, obviously my job is to protect my children and take yeah. care of my children. So it's very, we have to be careful in how we approach these things because they will try to coerce us in other ways. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you think about CBDC, the vaccine passport, the digital health passport, you combine that together, you have this whole possibility of social credit score. And Mm -hmm. then once you have that, it's like, you know, who's going to make decisions? Can you travel? Did you, do you have enough of your, you know, carbon credits or whatever? Life is going to get interesting, I would say. Yeah. But uh, one good thing is that we have created now these relationships, you know, across the continents, across the countries mm. where people can talk and um, try to find solutions. It's exactly. And, and we didn't have that, I think, pre-2020, pre-COVID. And now we do have that. So I think that, that as you said, there is there is hope there. And I, by the way, I echo your comment that we have to be careful and not be too arrogant. If so, I mean, for example, the most common reason for people to take the jabs in the first place 
was travel. They wanted to travel. Who would have thought that people would sold out their would sell their bodily autonomy so they can have a holiday or travel? But sometimes, you know, but it's not even as simple as that. Sometimes you have family members who live in a different country, in different place, and it's like you have someone who is sick and you want to go be able to see them. So not all of it was kind of for those luxury type of uh, reasons. Sometimes it's just life. And then a lot of people actually believed it because they, they really sold it, right? They yeah. sold this fear. They sold a lot of things. And then you had the doctors and uh, other agencies saying, this is good. It's safe. You know, you're going to protect your mom. And sometimes, you know, you do things because you want to make things better. You know, in retrospect, it's easy to kind of play what we say Monday morning quarterback. But at the time when you're like, afraid and and isolated yeah. you know you do the best you can with what you have yeah well listen you've most definitely done the best possible managing that dog and the squeaking of <laughs> the toys you've done a great job cat it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and uh, as i say folks make sure you follow cat over on uh, on the x slash twitter platform there you go and also follow the global health project as well there's some great information um, as you say, if we just go back there to that previous, I like the quote you have about the truth there in your, uh, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself. Indeed. How true is that? Listen, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Th thanks so much again for taking up this time uh, to share with our, our viewers and our listeners, Kat. And uh, uh, as I say, I hope to have you back at some time in the future because this battle is only really starting, as you rightly observe. But, uh, but this interview is ending. So listen, Kat, thanks so much again. Listen, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to us. And uh, I'll be back later on in the week. Uh, podcast as normal, start again tomorrow. Uh, see you then. Thanks, everybody. From Kat and myself, good night. <laughs>